0: We're continuing to see coronavirus case counts rise in many places as the country fights to contain the spread, but throughout the pandemic, there have been some bright spots in states' responses. President Trump gave states the opportunity to call their own shots, and some have been more successful than others. Politico has compiled a list of which states had the best pandemic response, whether it's fighting the virus, managing the economic fallout, or getting kids back to school. For more on who did it best, we'll speak to Tucker Doherty, Healthcare reporter at Politico.
1: Vermont, as you may know, it's it's right next door to a lot of states that got hit early on. And they did record some early cases and death already in, in late March and April. And so they were definitely at risk of getting hit hard just like other states nearby, like New York and New Jersey and Massachusetts. I think what stands out about Vermont's approach is that they were never complacent. They didn't say just because they had a rural population or just because they weren't seeing a huge wave at first, they didn't assume it wasn't going to hit them. So like many other states, they at first had a fairly strict lockdown. You know, they closed a lot of businesses, closed schools, and they've been very cautious at what they choose to reopen when they reopen it. They wait for things to seem safe enough. They wait for their health experts to say this activity, you know, opening the outdoor areas of dining is safe now. And another aspect of it, and I think this is crucial just because, as I mentioned, they had neighbors that were hard hit, is that they were also willing to have policies that make it so that when people came from out of state, from places that were experiencing spikes of the virus, they asked people to quarantine. They asked people to either stay at home for two weeks or If that was something that was too difficult for some people, they also let people take a test after a week of arriving. Now, some other states have done that. New York did that as well. Vermont has also just sort of been more stringent with that. The other aspect of Vermont's travel restrictions is that they were sort of very specific about wanting to know where the virus is. So it wasn't just by state. It was even by county. So if you're a Vermont resident and you traveled right over the border into some counties in neighboring New York or, or New Hampshire and so forth, if those counties were having a spike, even if the state as a whole was looking fine on the statistics, they recognized, hey, if you're in an area with high spread, there's a chance you're going to bring it back. At the same time, they're aware that it's a trade-off with business, with people's willingness to withstand lockdown. And their governor, Phil Scott, I think what they recognize is that no matter what you're telling people they need to do, you need them to comply. And so you need to be flexible in your approach. You need to give people an out, you know, if there's some sane way of still enjoying some of the normal activities of life without being everything shut down forever. And so overall, they've been able to both keep cases very low and keep deaths very low, but also their economy is looking pretty good right now.
0: Seattle kind of became a little success story after initially really being where the first case was. The first big outbreak at the Life Care Center of Kirkland, you know, was a big problem at that nursing home, but they turned it around after that. uh, As they started learning, they put a lot of aid towards nursing homes and caring for the people there, and they were able to really turn around those numbers.
1: The number one thing you can say about what Washington State did right is that they were not only fast, there were a lot of places that were fast, but they were coordinated. So when it came to having mayors and governors on the same track, instead of holding competing press conferences and disagreeing with each other, they let health officials lead their messaging rather than elected officials. Often when you put an elected official in front of the mic, they might slip or they might say something that a public health official wouldn't say in the, in the same place. And they also made sure that they were coordinating across the state government between different agencies, the health department, the housing department. So, for example, when they started to see an uptick in cases on the homeless populations in the area, first of all, they were able to catch it really quickly. And then they were able to direct resources to it and and sort of nip it in the bud. And you're right, they had that first outbreak in the nursing homes and, and they were sort of the case study for the nation as a whole to learn that that was one of the the sort of the soft underbelly of our response was vulnerability in nursing homes. And to their credit, once they recognized that was a problem, they put in rules, they put in resources, and they really made a, a special effort to say, everyone needs to pitch in on this, but there are some places that just need a little more attention.
0: Michigan was also a success story in closing the racial disparities. We've seen how COVID attacks communities of colors in different ways. They set up task force to help with walk-up and pop-up sites for testing. Um, so they really paid attention to their vulnerable populations there.
1: It's important to point out that it's something they improved over time on. If you look at the aggregate stats, they don't necessarily look like that story because they did struggle early on. Their first wave of deaths was way disproportionately African-American. But as you said, they, they formed the task force. They, they identified neighborhoods that weren't having enough testing. They recognize, for example, you, you hear a lot about drive-in testing sites in states, but a lot of the most vulnerable people don't have a car, and they recognize that some neighborhoods needed an option for people to just walk in on foot. And as you said, they've seen good results. They've essentially closed the disparity. Now, it remains to be seen whether that will always remain the case, and of course, you can't undo the problems they saw early on. But it was definitely something where they were they were responsive and they were focused on the problem, and I think you could argue that really they've made the most progress on that compared to any other state.
0: Let's talk about how some of the states managed the economic fallout. Some standouts were Colorado for taking quick action on unemployment, really uh, fighting a lot of fraud there. Iowa also, and uh, Minnesota was uh, pretty good with uh, its unemployment insurance infrastructure. You know, there was a lot of stories about how these systems were decades old. And at least in Minnesota, they weren't bogged down by that type of thing.
1: Right. And I think I think those are, you know, there there are multiple parts of that that are important. It's, it's not just the generosity on paper of your benefit. It's how quickly did you get that money to people when they needed it? And like you said, Minnesota is, is a place where sort of the pipes of bureaucracy were well set up and, and they were prepared, you know, whether it was going to be a, a normal recession or in this case, Something more severe and unexpected. They were ready to jump into action, and I think that's, that's why you can see on some of the economic front that there was a little bit less pain there just because it wasn't such a headache for people. People were fighting over their checks in the same way they were in other states, and they were just ready to adapt.
0: Opening schools, because this was a problem that a lot of people were dealing with just recently, Rhode Island stood out because the governor there put out basically a statewide plan. They wanted to get everybody on the same page to bring students back for in-person instruction. And then also Florida, because they had a already a robust virtual school program because of, you know, hurricanes, a bunch of disaster things that have happened. They already had that infrastructure set up. So when it came time to kids learning remotely from school, they already had a leg up.
1: What worked with Rhode Island is that they made sure that they put aside specific resources for K-12 schools. So they have testing sites that if you're a staff member of one of these K-12 schools, you can go there and you're not going to wait at the line or get kicked off the list that you might elsewhere. They deployed the National Guard to help with staffing needs because schools just aren't equipped to take on all of these extra needs. Now, Florida, on the other hand, like you said, it had a system in place. It, it knows it's dealt with hurricanes in the past. So it was prepared for its schools to need to move to this virtual teaching. And, and as any parent from sort of other states in the country can tell you, that can go awry if you don't have the technology and the systems in place. But on the other hand, it, it has been a bit controversial there, you know, among many of the experts that we talked to, that Florida has sort of been so hard line on opening the schools that they've threatened to cut off funding and they've they've told communities, you know, even if you're experiencing a bad moment, we still want you opening those schools. Now, in their defense, I think schools, you know, a lot of the experts we talked to, they school should be a priority. It's something where you're going to see a lot of harm to kids that you can't necessarily just, you know, make up with a summer program or something like that. And so I, I think it's, you know, with a with a place like Rhode Island, it's a matter of prioritizing, right? You know, are you opening bars and, and closing schools? Um, you know, that's something that's, that's not really going to have good results down the road. On the other hand, if if you control the virus first and are cautious in reopening and say, "Hey, schools are really important and we need to open them," uh, so let's get resources there. You might see a bit more success.
0: Well, it's been an interesting road back. I mean, every state has had a different type of plan to do it, uh, and you know, some states uh, you know have had some successes. So uh, it's just a good look at how they did it and and, and why it worked. Tucker Doherty, healthcare reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. One of the interesting things about the coronavirus pandemic is that it sparked a need for more plastic. Demand for everything from face shields, gloves, takeaway food containers, and even bubble wrap for online shopping has all gone up. And with that demand, it has severely set back the effort to recycle. This is all happening as big oil companies are investing hundreds of billions of dollars to create new plastic. And companies that have made pledges to use more recyclable materials are even in a tough spot, as new plastics are far cheaper than using recycled plastic. For more on how the pandemic has accelerated the trend of creating more and not less plastic trash, we'll speak to Joe Brock, special correspondent at Reuters.
2: Before the pandemic, we had a plastic waste crisis. Um, and I think that there was an awareness about that, that it's killing marine life, it's, it's leaking toxins into drinking water in some of the world's poorest countries. And then the, the pandemic hits and we have this flood of new plastic, you know containers from food takeaway, you know, bubble wrap because more people were ordering in as they were stuck in the lockdowns, as well as the, the life-saving PPE, the masks and the gowns and the body bags, which is understandable. But also you have this double whammy where plastic recyclers are suffering like every other industry under an economic meltdown, and they are unable to recycle the plastic. And the price of oil from which plastic is made drops dramatically. And that means that new plastic becomes very cheap and recyclers cannot compete with that new plastic. So you've got this tsunami of new plastic arriving on the scene. Recyclers are struggling. And so this dynamic can only lead to more plastic waste.
0: I think that's a very important thing that a lot of people don't realize or they forget right away, is that plastic really comes from fossil fuels, oils and, and petrochemicals. And as you were mentioning, you know, to make new plastics, these single-use plastics, it's so much cheaper now than using recyclables. Uh, you know, there's companies that have pledged to use more recyclable materials in, in their packaging and whatnot, But they just can't keep up. You know, new plastics is just cheaper for their
2: business models. And all of this can
0: become a driver of climate change.
2: Correct. And I think this is something which has been overlooked or misunderstood during the climate change debate. Not only is plastic made from fossil fuels, oil-derived products, and gas, this is a growing area for struggling oil and gas companies. People are driving more electric cars. They're moving to cleaner fuel. These oil and gas giants need to use up this oversupply of shale gas in the US. They've got dwindling opportunities to use this. And one area they can put it into is making new plastic for the developing world where there's a rising middle class in parts of Asia and Africa. The problem comes that these are the places who are feeling the plastics crisis the worst. So as oil and gas companies are spending about $400 billion to increase production of plastics to use up cheap oil and gas, these countries have no way of processing that plastic. So with already a waste crisis, more supply coming online, no way to deal with it, what do you think is going to happen?
0: And the oil and gas industry are planning to spend about $400 billion over the next five years on new plants to make the raw materials for these new plastics, virgin plastics, as they're called through Reuters, you guys surveyed 12 of the largest oil and chemical firms around the world to see what they're doing about this waste. And really, they're just spending a fraction of the money that they're making on sales to devote to working on waste.
2: So you've got uh, campaign groups and you know some politicians and some governments saying to the oil and gas industry, we cannot cope. We need to reduce plastic production. And what the oil and gas industry is saying is... Don't worry, we've got this covered. We've got a solution. We are investing in recycling infrastructure. We are helping poor countries to deal with their waste. And that's where our story really came from. We wanted to check that claim. And what we found was the pledges made by the oil and gas industry are a fraction of what they're spending on increasing plastic production, and they will have a minimal impact on reducing plastic waste. So I think that that's a key point for us to understand because as the oil and gas companies tell you that they are fixing the plastic waste crisis, it's important to interrogate those figures. And I think that's what we've hopefully achieved with this story.
0: I wanted to talk a little bit more of the effect of the pandemic. As we said in the beginning, you know, face masks, gowns, the PPE that we need to protect ourselves. That's also a big thing that's going to be fueling a lot of the waste. You mentioned in your article, China used 12 times more face masks than they did in earlier months. And the United States they generated an entire year's worth of medical waste in two months at the height of the pandemic. So this is a lot of stuff that we're going to be seeing and the effects are going to be with us for some time.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that's where it's worth separating the issue here. I don't think anyone is saying that plastic is not an incredible material you right. know, with m- multiple uses and that it's helped industrial organizations to make planes lighter, make cars lighter. I think the issue here is single-use plastic. And the fear is that this pandemic will exacerbate that trend of single-use plastic. So although people may need masks and need gowns, and these are essentials, if companies were to take this opportunity to increase the use of plastic, single-use plastic, then it's going to add to the waste problem. And that's something we've seen with oil and gas lobbies who, since the pandemic has hit, have written to lawmakers in the US to say that. Single use plastic is safer than other materials. Now, scientists have found that that's not the case. So, you have to question whether the plastic, the pandemic, is being used by certain vested interest companies that they want to capitalize on this to increase their profits.
0: I think when a lot of people think about plastic waste and the huge problem, they definitely think about our oceans. Plastics make up about 80% of the marine debris. And we've seen the big problems. We've seen the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, you know, which is just a bunch of plastic and netting and things like that. So I think a lot of people are really focused on that when they hear about a plastics problem. But, I mean, it really ranges all over the place.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is a problem which affects everyone, you know, affects humanity. And I think that you you see it in the oceans and certainly in parts of, you know, Southeast Asia, which is, you know, considered one of the biggest tourist destinations in the world of pristine beaches, turquoise oceans, you've got these waterways completely clogged with plastic. Fishing communities devastated where their livelihoods are at risk. As you mentioned, huge floating plastics uh, in in the Pacific and elsewhere. But it's not just in the oceans. It's clogging up rivers. It's uh, affecting communities where they rely on food supplies, where plastic waste is littered. So, You know, this is an issue that impacts everybody and it should be an issue which everyone wants to help fix.
0: We talked a little bit about the efforts from the oil and gas companies to limit plastic waste. But one thing that I did not know and I found very interesting that the world's top three plastic polluters for two years running now are Coca-Cola, Nestle and PepsiCo. Obviously, they have a lot of plastic packaging. Their bottles are made, uh, the, the bottles that hold the soda in there are made from plastic. And they're constantly setting goals to use more recyclable plastic in their products and not meeting those standards. And a lot of it goes back to what we were saying at the beginning. It's just cheaper to use new plastic than it is to use recycled stuff.
2: Coke and Pepsi and Nestle and the other big consumer goods companies are giving a a consistent message. They want to fix this problem. They want to use more recycled products. But when it comes to meeting those targets... They're consistently missed. And this is over decades. And then they set new targets. Now, what they're saying is we cannot get the recycled material. Now, they cannot get the recycled material at the right price. It's cheaper to buy new plastics. Now, how are you going to get more recycled material? Well, you need a a very advanced recycling system. And that's what we're highlighting in this story. The investment in that recycling infrastructure is simply not there. The oil and gas industries, Coke, Pepsi, they say they're investing in it but they're investing a fraction of what they're spending on advertising on new production. And this is a competitive industry. When you go into the store and you look at the bottle of Coke, the bottle of Pepsi, the bottle you know, of, of another brand, the price of the packaging is significant in that product. And you don't want your product to be increasing because you're using more recycled plastic. So the proof is in the pudding. We've seen that they've made these, these promises before and they've missed them. So I think we need to Keep checking and keep seeing if they're going to meet those promises in the future.
0: Joe Brock, special correspondent at Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us.
2: You're welcome. It's a pleasure.
0: That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive and iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.